1: Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrowcom slash ACAST. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to
0: bluehost.com/slash-wondersuite.
1: Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. What a week this has been. For Joe Biden, the president went into it saying it would be make or break for his presidency and it looks a little more break. Than make. Regular listeners to this podcast will remember that we spoke just a few weeks ago uh, on the podcast to Jessica Taylor of the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter, that's the full name, all about the battle in Virginia and how important that was going to be for Democrats and for Joe Biden. On Tuesday, voters delivered their verdict in what had been billed as a kind of referendum on the Biden presidency as they chose a new governor. And they chose a Republican, for the first time in more than a decade. The opinion polls are low. And in other parts of the country, including the deep blue state of New Jersey, that went to a photo finish, rather than it being safely in Democratic hands, as most pollsters would have assumed it would be. All this coming as Joe Biden's programme is snarled up in Congress with his two big bills really containing all of his agenda in limbo in both the House and Senate. We've talked about all of those on the podcast, but it's really come together this week. And just as Joe Biden wanted to be on the world stage and getting things done in Glasgow for COP26, instead returning to Washington with war on several fronts and his own presidency looking very, very vulnerable. Who better to talk about all of this than with longtime friend of the podcast and the Guardian's bureau chief for Washington, D.C., David Smith. David, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. It's been a pretty rough old week for Joe Biden. And, you know, we could a- attack it from all kinds of fronts. But let's begin first with the news that came late Tuesday in the into the early hours of Wednesday with off-year elections in Virginia and New Jersey, and I suppose in different ways, pretty bad news from both of them for Joe Biden.
0: Yes, very grim um, elections for Joe Biden in what was effectively the first uh, referendum on his presidency. Um, Most eyes were on uh, Virginia. This time in the election for governor, it was uh, Republican Glenn Youngkin versus uh, Democrat Terry McAuliffe, who had served as governor Before. For months, the polls showed McAuliffe ahead, but uh, Youngkin really gained a lot of momentum and on the night um, won the race, uh, perhaps more comfortably than some expected. Um, I was at uh, Terry McAuliffe's election watch party in uh, in Tysons in Northern Virginia, and uh, you could feel the energy sapping out of the room and, and quite early. McAuliffe came and gave a speech in which he did not concede defeat, but uh, reading between the lines, it was obvious which way it was going. And and at that point, um, everyone trailed out into the the cold, uh, chilly night. Um, The TVs were unceremoniously switched off, and um, it really felt uh, a a grim uh, mood with uh, lots of portents for the Biden presidency and for Democrats in next year's uh, midterm elections for Congress.
1: That moment when they turn the TV sets off. I've been there in so many of those election parties that turn into wakes. I mean, the one that was surprising even more, because it was a dark blue state, really, is New Jersey. As you and I speak, that race has not been called, and it's possible, the signs are, that the Democrat there might uh, eke out a win. Either way, just the fact that it was close is a shock because that would should have been an absolute um, home run for both. Obviously, there are kind of local factors, statewide factors for both, and we might get into those. But as you said uh, at the top, this is seen as and was seen as a referendum on the Biden presidency. If if that is the lens, what were voters in those two states giving the thumbs down to?
0: I think there are multiple factors. Um, certainly to a degree, I think these results reflect uh, dissatisfaction and frustration with the Joe Biden presidency um, so far. Um, His uh, agenda is uh, stalling in Congress, uh, much wrangling there over huge uh, spending bills. The economy is not quite uh, roaring as people hoped or as he promised. Jobs growth is slow. Petrol or gas prices are up, things that people really feel um, in their pockets. And uh, all of this is reflected in Biden's uh, approval rating, which in a recent Gallup poll is down to 42 percent, the lowest ever for a president at this stage, apart from uh, Donald Trump during his presidency. So there is a sense of uh, of malaise, of, of things not happening
1: as fast as they should. Yeah. And the timing of that sort of sentiment is particularly sharp because it was a year ago uh, this week that they all went to the polls and did elect Joe Biden as president. So it really is one year on this kind of early judgment. I suppose the other things to put in the mix, the things I would add to what you just said, there is COVID. He was elected partly to get to grips with the pandemic. And at first he seemed to. And then uh, the Delta variant means that n- meant that numbers did go Uh, back up again so that sense that he hadn't fully got uh, to grips with that and then also he he, part of his pitch was that he was going to restore competence and you know capable government again and people saw you know Afghanistan and the withdrawal in August that really tanked his numbers they haven't really recovered since then Uh, and so this sort of inter inverted that it's not there and then I suppose you add into the mix given that we're talking about a year ago What gelled Democrats back then a year ago was this unifying factor, negative factor, of loathing for Donald Trump? And I suppose, well, you tell us, to what extent was it a factor in this case that there wasn't Donald Trump on the ballot and he wasn't even really kind of around to kick for Democrats? This
0: was really crucial in Virginia, And I think ultimately, the result showed that uh, the election was more about uh, the current president, rather than the specter of the past president. Uh, Democrats certainly worked over time to make this election about uh, Donald Trump and relentlessly tried to tie the Republican candidate Glenn Youngkin uh, to Trump. And it just didn't really stick. It didn't cut through. And I talked to people who said, uh, you know, I, I, I hated Trump, but I'm uh, I'm fine with uh, with Yunkin.
1: And I want to thank my beloved Commonwealth of Virginia.
0: <laughs> and and really, he, he he found a sweet spot, uh, not too warm, not too cold, just in the middle to uh, keep the Trump base uh, happy and keep Trump himself happy, um, but also appeal to independents and moderates in that way, found a template, set a blueprint for Republican candidates uh, going forward in swing states.
1: Well, exactly. You've got us onto this crucial point, which is that these elections, fascinating though they are in both Virginia and New Jersey, and and some of those specific local factors are really intriguing. The reason why people pay close attention to them is that they are seen as harbingers of what will happen a year from now, when a whole lot of states go to the polls for those midterm elections, the entire uh, House of Representatives, one third of the seats in the Senate, and uh, a similar proportion of governorship, so huge amount of elections coming in twenty twenty two and these results you know they obviously are seen as a as a very troubling indicator for Democrats, but also they suggest what you mentioned there, which is a template, a way for Republicans to conduct themselves, and a way that Democrats can see how things can go wrong. Just on that, one of the things that happened in Virginia that's interesting, and we talked about it when we looked at the Virginia race a couple of weeks back on the podcast, was this notion of running very hard on what is taught in schools and the claim, and it's been debunked, that uh, that Democrats and Terry McAuliffe favoured teaching critical race theory in schools. And Yunkin went very hard on that, and the exit polling seems to suggest that went well uh, for him. A lot of people are saying, this shows you the shape of campaigns to come uh, in 2022, both in terms of handling Donald Trump, as you said, arm's length, but not too arm's length, but also in terms of how the culture wars can be fought anew in 2022. If that is right, what do you think Democrats can take away from that in terms of how they can avoid repeating the mistake that Terry McAuliffe and the Democrats made in Virginia?
0: I think uh, there were two parts to this one as we say the strategic ambiguity of uh how to deal with with Trump without uh, alienating him but then uh, equal equally if not more important uh, yankee's campaign was this uh intense laser focus on um on race and uh schools and so with that culture war card being played Terry McAuliffe I think responded very badly um he, he got it wrong and that's the lesson for for democrats um he infamously made a, a gaffe at a debate where he said, um, I don't think parents should be telling schools what to teach. And I'm not going to let parents come into schools bill. and actually you take books out and make their own decision. You vetoed it. So to yeah, i stopped it. the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. You know. Some people, including probably me, would argue is, is actually not unreasonable. And then especially when you see the full quote in context actually made a lot more sense. But even so, it gave Republicans their weapon. That that line was replayed uh, endlessly.
1: A big issue, as we've said, in these elections was the notion that Democrats have not really done much in the year since uh, they were elected to control both houses of Congress and the White House. Uh, and central to that is... Joe Biden's big programme, which has, as you said, stalled um, in Congress. So let's move on to that, because many, many people in the aftermath of the elections this week have been saying, well, that's the obvious remedy. Democrats have to now get their act together and pass something, because if only just to seem capable, because the, the electorate are just seeing them arguing and fighting each other like rats in a sack. So bring us up to date. There are two big bills. Neither of them, as you and I speak now, have been passed. Um, Why are they stalled? And what what are are the two bills? And what would they do?
0: Yeah, this is uh, central to Biden's promise. Um, There is a a trillion dollar bill for infrastructure, um, long overdue improvements to roads, bridges, railways, airports, uh, ports, and uh, not least importantly, uh, broadband internet for many people who still don't have it. And that bill is really popular with both sides. Indeed, that um, passed uh, the Senate uh, quite a while ago on a a bipartisan basis with uh, support from uh, not a majority of Republicans, but enough, including uh, Mitch McConnell. But um, Progressives in the Democratic Party um, in the House say they will not do that. They will not pass it until they also get a cast iron guarantee on um, Joe Biden's other bill, which uh, is known as uh, Build Back Better or the the reconciliation package. This is this has been described as, as human or, or social um, infrastructure. It's a, a really historic expansion of the uh, the social safety net, um, child care care for the elderly, many other things, and um, very crucially, a huge um, investment in uh, dealing with the climate crisis. Uh, It would be the the biggest spending on that um, in American history.
1: I mean, just when you go through the kind of, you know, shopping list of items, $555 billion set aside, exactly as you say, for climate and clean energy, $400 billion for childcare and preschool programmes, $150 billion on housing. On it goes, a huge amount of money. Is, is it partly that just the price tag itself, the sheer amount of money that has led to opposition to this bill, certainly from Republicans, but also, and again, we've talked about it on this podcast, two members of Joe Biden's own party.
0: It is essentially, um, I think, progressives and certainly their activists would have liked uh, this bill to be about uh, six trillion dollars um, spread over the ten years, and they they pretty quickly had to come down to to three trillion dollars, and that still was uh, way too much for, uh, in particular. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Senator uh, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, as well as uh, some members of the House. So we've had weeks of wrangling and negotiations. And uh, just before Joe Biden left for COP26 in Glasgow, he um, announced um, a framework had been established, uh, bringing it down to $1.75 trillion, which uh, to some people is still uh, a massive amount to others who say, well, look, it is spread over a decade, maybe not so much compared to spending on defense and, and, and so on. But even that framework did not get a full and total endorsement from mansion and cinema. Uh, progressives still have their own concerns. Um, there's still last ditch efforts to get things into it. Like, uh, lower prescription drug prices, um, paid family leave was going to be dropped. But uh, Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, has managed to uh, get provisions for that uh, back in, although obviously the haggling continues. So what,
1: what? What? let's put these two things together. What impact do the really poor results on Tuesday have on the prospects of Joe Biden getting these two massive bills through and signed into law? Does it, on the one hand, make Democrats think, the voters hate the fact that we cannot get our act together. We better, therefore, just get these things done. Or does it make some people, perhaps around the kind of Joe Manchin wing of the party thing, hold on a second, the voters are heading rightward. That's why they've just elected Republicans. We mustn't do some big, bloated, high tax, high spend uh, bit of domestic policy here. We're going to have to rein it in and therefore make part passage of, of these two bills even less likely?
0: It's a great question. And I think the next few days, we'll see how that plays out. And I suspect uh, both arguments will be made. There's also the fear, I think, that uh, some will see Biden as already just a year in, uh, not not even a year in as, as some kind of lame duck president. I saw one survey, even many Democrats saying they don't want him to run again. Why should we Rally round him, why should we go into bat for him when uh, it 's clearly drifting away and, and that would be the nightmare scenario in a, in a kind of downward spiral where uh, he no longer has that position uh, of authority to, uh, to to sort of command
1: the party which direction to take but it just seems to me there 's so little wiggle room on either side because you have absolutely have to get almost every vote in the House. The majority there is razor thin. And you need 50 out of 50 Democratic senators, even though some of them are worlds apart. They all have to agree. And, I, I you know, if you had to bet, who is it that will blink? I mean, progressives think they've already compromised, have di- diluted this bill down from what it was, three and a half trillion down to 1.75 is the current standing. But on the other hand, Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, they don't don't seem to be anywhere close. So, I mean, who in the end blinks?
0: Uh, I think what normally happens in these situations is you know both sides find a way to convince their own bases that neither of them blinked and they, they'll, they'll point to all the victories they got and sort of try and fudge a, fudge a compromise uh, that way. Um, certainly Manchin's statement um, earlier this week, uh, he was uh, adamant that it, he's not going to blink. Again, to be clear, I will not support the reconciliation legislation without knowing how the bill will impact our debt and our economy and our country. And we won't know that until we work through the text. Surely, uh, Democrats out of sheer self-preservation will think to themselves, we we have to pass something because the alternative would be just so apocalyptic. Uh, It would be such a disastrous blow for Biden's presidency and they would have nothing to show um, in the midterm elections.
1: I mean, it's a historic disaster for them. They have to surely pass something. But right now it is getting quite hard to see how. Dave, we should talk about the place where, uh, and the things that Joe Biden has been doing this week. He's not even been in Washington, obviously. He's been abroad, first of all, in Rome for the G20, and then in Glasgow for COP26. You know, maybe dealing with an apocalyptic threat to the future of the planet counts as a break for Joe Biden, considering what the rest of his time is like. And we did see him uh, resting his eyes, getting a little bit of much needed rest during one of the speeches in Glasgow. How does uh, he feel? And how do you think Democrats feel about how he did uh, this week in Europe? The science is clear. We only have a brief window left before us to raise our ambitions and to raise to meet the task that's rapidly narrowing.
0: Biden said and did a lot of the right things. And there were the the, the warm handshakes with world leaders um it was quite interesting that he um rebuked uh china and russia for staying away from uh, cop uh, 26 he values um personal diplomacy actually being in the room with people um has vast foreign policy experience um probably i think uh much more enjoyable for him than the uh, the sausage making in washington and these interminable negotiations but um What uh, he may have struggled to really convince these world leaders is his message that America is back. Many world leaders will still take the view once, bitten, twice shy and uh, not necessarily feel that America is back for good.
1: No, I think this is exactly where the domestic and the international collide, because that message of America is back was undermined by the fact that Joe Biden arrived there without being able to point to legislation that Uh, he had passed without being able to say, look, here's what we are actually doing. Instead, it's just a proposal. Uh, Altogether, though, I suppose it is, he said, Joe Biden himself, that he thought this was a make or break week in his presidency. Um, Is it too early to be talking that kind of language about Joe Biden and his presidency?
0: Yes, it is. Um, He's less than a a year in and uh, every president goes through ups and downs we only have to look at lessons from the past where uh, Barack Obama got uh, the Affordable Care Act through and that did not save him from what he described as a shellicking in the 2010 midterm elections. So I'm, I'm sceptical that uh, passing this agenda is is that crucial to the midterms. I suspect uh, Democrats will probably lose anyway. But the other lesson from that era and, and other periods, of course, is that uh, Obama then bounced back to actually um win the presidency for a second time, so um you know Biden, although he 's older may may do the same, but certainly um this is a bit of what began as a rough week has turned into now a rough several few months there 's no doubt
1: yeah, and uh, plenty of people will be saying, well look, maybe the plus side of this is it will be a wake up call and a call to action for him to and his party to turn things around. David, as a veteran of this podcast, you know we always do ask a what else question. And this one is about those election results, which were mainly bad news for Democrats, but there was some good news uh, for them, and not at state level, but rather at city level, with several new mayors uh, elected in cities, uh, and mayors drawn from the Asian American community, several firsts. So that Boston, for example, elected 36-year-old Michelle. Wu, who is the first woman and first person of color in that city, which I read has only elected either Irish American or Italian American men since the 1930s, but in Cincinnati, Aftab Pureval, also in his 30s, elected as that city's first Asian American mayor. I rather liked his line, which is he said, When you see Aftab on a yard sign. It doesn't occur to people that it's a candidate, not an insurance company, which I thought was rather great. And in Dearborn, Michigan, electing Abdullah Hamoud as the first Arab American mayor, and all of this, of course, with uh, along with New York City and Democrat Eric Adams, uh, the only the second African American to lead that city. So something there, I suppose, in those results to to lift. Uh, democratic spirit.
0: Yes, I think uh, another sign of a diversifying party. There's a new generation uh, coming through. Uh, Quite telling, of course, that uh, most of them are on the democratic side. And most of them are in um, in cities. And um, part of the polarization we're seeing in America is between uh, rural, uh, white on the one hand, and uh, urban people of color on the other. And I think these uh, these Merrill elections um, often reflect that uh, that the challenge again is going to be to to build uh, bridges. Uh, but uh, certainly um, a, a very positive note amid the gloom for for Democrats. There um, hopes from another generation who may one day be running for national office, maybe even the presidency. David,
1: with your crystal ball, thank you so much for joining us as always on Politics Weekly Extra. Thank you. And that is all from me for this week. For daily updates on the remainder of COP26, do make sure to listen to our sister podcast, Science Weekly. Each day, your host, Madeleine Finlay, who's on the ground in Glasgow, will be joined by the Guardian's award-winning environment team as they report on what is certainly the most critical climate meeting ever. Do subscribe to Science Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. But for now... It's goodbye. The producer this week was Hattie Moyer, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please stay safe out there, and thanks, as always, for listening.
0: This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?